You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're listening to the second part of my interview with Charles Strauss. We were talking about his novel, Halting State, and how a robbery committed inside a virtual world has real-world implications. We now rejoin my interview with Charles Strauss. Could you talk about writing about really IT-intensive ideas and landscapes for people who aren't necessarily in the business and, and you know, just the lay people? I'm not sure I can talk about it that easily without a finer focus. Um, I came out of a dot-com in 2000 and had appeared as a computer journalist um, around the time the dot-com bubble burst. And I think it's infected my worldview somewhat in that um, IT land is my native homeland to a great extent. So I find it difficult to sort of distinguish between that domain and what everybody around me seems to think is the real world. One thing that, that I noticed that, that I liked was but that you brought in EULAs as a, as a plot device. Could you explain what a, a EULA is and, and tell Spelt. how... E-U-L-A. Oh, End User License Agreement. Is that not the correct pronunciation? Um, I pronounce it E-U-L-A. Oh, That's E-U-L-A. how I heard it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. An End User License Agreement is sort of the annoying shrink wrap license you have to click through to get a piece of software activated. Um, you do not buy software you pay money and agree to a license that grants you certain limited rights to use it. And very often, buried at the bottom of that small print, there'll be a clause saying, the company reserves the right to vary the terms and conditions of this license. They will post it um, at the back of a filing cabinet in the sub-basement behind a door saying, beware of a leopard, or on the web. Um, There is one of the... uh, MacGuffin's in-halting state is that our characters have signed end-user license agreements as a condition of playing a game, and a very, very unfortunate variation in the terms and conditions is served on them without them being aware of it until too late. And, and this goes to the, the all-pervasive influence of something that, that I think would surprise a lot of people, which is the SETI at Home program. Distributed Processing. One of the problems besetting any massively multiplayer online game is that as they add more players, they need more servers to provide the gaming universe that the players interact with. Um, in general, it's a new server per 100 users, roughly, or possibly per 200 users, and these servers cost real money. SETI at Home took on a really big computing task and figured out the way to do it was to divide it up into lots of little chunks and to scatter it across users' computers. Now, there's idiots out there who will try to fake a SETI result. I'm not sure quite why, but they do this. And therefore, SETI at home came up with some rather elaborate techniques for spotting fakers. For example, um, all the actual data they come up with is scattered to at least three different users, and they have to all give the same result before it's accepted even as a preliminary. Now, it occurred to me that one way around the server problem for the games companies is to use peer-to-peer computing 
and virtualization, new technology which allows you to run a different operating system environment on a machine under another operating system as a guest, to hand out bits of the game server to various players. You know, they sign an end-user license agreement saying we're giving the software company 10% of our processor cycles to run servers on in return for the privilege of playing the game. Of course, this has lots and lots and lots of security problems, but if the game you're running is a, is a platform that supports multiple games, you just hand players of game A a chunk of server code for game B and vice versa. There's no temptation for them to actually cheat on that basis. And these games are running on people's mobile phones all over the world. As a, a writer, you tend to really like uh, crime fiction. A and one of the things that I think that you do very well in this book is is to deceive the reader and distract the reader to think that the story is going in one direction and, or is going to remain at one level and then you escalate it in, in a manner that's that's frightening, sudden, sudden and compelling. I've always had a fondness for spy thrillers and also to some extent for certain types of crime novel. I'm not so big on the sort of dry, cold-blooded whodunit, you know, it was Colonel Mustard in the coal cellar with the uh, candelabra that sort, where it's just a logic game of deduction. But certainly I found it very interesting, and reality is multi-layered anyway. There's all sorts of undercurrents going on around us and stuff we're not necessarily overtly aware of that we're engaged in at any given time. It seemed to me that um, to do a good job of painting this kind of future, I needed to use multiple layers and to uh, show all sorts of things. On the surface, the world of today doesn't look that different to the world of 50 years ago. If you imagine a time traveller scooped from 50 years ago and dropped on the high street today, well, and told them they were 50 years in the future, what would they notice? Well, they'd know the cars were a different shape. That's for starters. Fashions have changed, but what do you expect? They'd notice people having these small boxes with coloured screens on them and talking to them a lot. And they'd notice televisions were bigger and very flat. They wouldn't even guess that the internet existed at first glance. They might just about get their heads around mobile phones by observing people talking to them. Um, and they'd be at a complete loss when they tried to understand the structure of the society they were living in, or its media. Well, when you talk about multiple threads and multiple layers, one of the things you also do in this novel is to use the games as as places for a plot to unspool while plot isn't happening in the real world. And there's some really crafty writing that goes on there. Could you talk about some of the scenes where things are transpiring in the real world and in a virtual world at the same time? As a writer, did you write those two scenes separately and then interleave them? No, I wrote them linearly. Oh, my God. That's the scary bit. Um, for example, there's one scene where two of our protagonists are trying to track down a fellow who appears to be selling some stolen magic items. And they've tracked him down and realised he's in a nearby city at a gaming convention. And they go to this gaming convention to try and meet him in person to make him an offer they think he won't refuse. When they get there, they find that there are several games running simultaneously and when they have their glasses switched on to display all the games in parallel, it's absolute chaos. It's a gaming convention. When our hero actually finds and confronts the fellow who's selling the stolen items, um, the uh, fence spooks, and a melee ensues in a fantasy world that is sufficiently distracting that our hero doesn't realise for a while that he's actually been stabbed for real. 
when you're writing about these kind of uh, virtual worlds, could you talk about keeping the language something that people in the real world can understand? It's risky because the virtual worlds in the gaming community have already invented a vocabulary of their own. And as that community grows, um, I think the number of people playing MMOs is virtually doubling every year. That language sort of spreads out into common use. Um, I can talk about emailing you something or sending you to look at a URL, and you know what I'm talking about. But back in 1994, you'd have been mystified. Well, that's a fascinating observation. So we've got to adopt the vocabulary that's already out there. And it looks science fictional now, but this book is going to age so fast. And that's another thing. Writing a book like this that's set only a mere 10, 11 years in the future, you know that 10 or 11 years from now you're going to be looking at this book again and thinking about, uh, well, I was right here, I was wrong there. Tell us a little bit about planned obsolescence as a part of literature. I know this book is going to be obsolete in 10 years. I don't believe SF is hugely good as a direct predictive medium, saying that X will definitely happen on such a schedule. Um, it's very easy to get. It's very easy to get it wrong. It's very easy to make predictions that sound plausible at first and are completely wrong. However, there are certain predictions we can make with a good degree of surety. Um, I'm pretty certain that, sort of, short of a disaster wiping out the IT industry worldwide microprocessors will be roughly 100 times more powerful in 10 years' time. This is following Moore's Law, which has held for 30 years, and for technical reasons is not expected to end for at least 13 more years. So that's one category of prediction that I can make, and people will yawn because you can read it in the newspapers any week. There's a second category of prediction I can make, um, which is, for example the name of a horse that will win the Grand National next year. And I can pull that out of my ass, and there's absolutely no guarantee whether or not it'll be right. It's a guess. It's a plausible-sounding guess, though, because we expect a Grand National to be held next year. And then I can predict that in 2010, the President of the United States will be a dolphin. Well, that might be an improvement. No comment. The thing is, that's so wild that... Um, it's probably going to be silly in 2010, but at least it's an interesting-looking prediction. There's also, when coming up with the hard predictions, for example, the one based on Moore's Law, there's secondary consequences you can predict if you're smart enough. Go back to 1990, and it was, in principle, possible for somebody to predict the invention of the iPod and the MP3 player. Formats for storing audio on the computer existed. Some of them compressed for data. Hard disks were getting bigger in capacity and smaller in physical size, and sooner or later the two curves would overtake each other and you could store one or more CDs on a hard drive powered by a battery. At that point, you have the iPod. Very few people did predict this, other than the people directly engaged in the industry, but I believe MP3 players began appearing from about 1994 onwards. What would be a lot harder to predict would be the podcast, and the near death of terrestrial radio broadcasting, thanks to consolidation and homogenization of content under a small number of owners such as Clear Channel, which drove a lot of the alternate content off the airwaves and into the iPod. Um, that's a secondary consequence of not only a new technology existing, but a social trend mediated by corporate developments. 
you might have guessed at it, but you would have had to be a genius to predict that specific outcome. Um, finally, there's stuff that you simply, well, throw all the pieces up in the air and they might come down in the right pattern. There are vibrators controlled by Bluetooth by MP3 players, and, you know, I don't think there's any way anyone could have reasonably predicted that from 1990. It's just surreal. It's when enough people have the new technology in their hands, somebody will invent something really wacky to do with it that nobody imagined. Um, as like Edison and the... Sorry, uh, not Edison... Um, Bell and the first telephones. He envisaged the critical application of telephones to be listening to opera or performances in the comfort of your own home. Wow, well, that's a, a mark missing <laughs> prediction if ever there was one. Yeah, it didn't stop the telephone being a great hit though. No. What all this talk reminds me of too is of course that you're really a guy who writes economic fiction. Economics was completely pervasive in this book. It, it, you can never escape it. And, and in fact, you talk about the economics of war, the economics of pretty much everything. It's a very interesting field, and it's one that I think has been neglected by science fiction to its detriment. Um, the dismal science actually covers why humans do things to a very large extent. It doesn't cover all our motivations. In fact, a lot of our motivations have nothing to do with economics. They're emotional at root. But for human activities involving money, or human activities that cost money, follow the economics. When, when you're writing all this economic fiction, one of the things you talk about, as you say, is that it informs our life. And we've seen this more and more, and this is very unfortunate, that the work-slash-life balance is shifting very heavily towards work, and we live more of a life of work now than we ever lived, and that's pretty much the opposite of what anybody would have predicted. It varies by country. In large parts of Europe, worker productivity per hour worked is as high as or higher than in the United States. Yet, worker salaries are actually a bit lower. The difference is they get six to ten weeks of holiday per year paid, with sick leave on top. And, you know, that's a different way of establishing a work-life balance. If I had to choose, I'm British, but if I had to choose between American work-life balance and German work-life balance, I'd pick the German one. Because, you know, you work harder while you're working, but you have time off. You have time to yourself. Um, I tend to think we work to live, not that we should live to work. And I can't help questioning the motives of those people who think we're not working hard enough and who crack the whip. Well, they're making money from us, most certainly. When you talk about Scotland of the future as well, and, and you make a few predictions with regards to Scotland, uh, could you talk about that? Scotland is a separate country from England, it is probably as different culturally and politically from England as, say, Virginia, South... Um, blah, 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 blah. It is South Virginia, or is it East Virginia? Uh, West Vir East and West Virginia. Okay. It's about as different from England as East Virginia is from Massachusetts. Um, they are very different culturally. It is very different politically. And for many years, during the 1960s and 70s, Scotland was somewhere to the left of England politically. Margaret Thatcher, when she came to power in 1979, made a very fateful decision. She looked at the demographics and the electoral representation and realised that she didn't need Scotland. 
Scotland had an awful lot of oil revenue. At one point, it was the world's seventh largest oil exporter. But it wasn't going to vote Conservative. The worst she could do by being nasty to Scotland would be to lose maybe 10 or 20 MPs. But she could gain enough money to buy a 100 of them south of the border. It led to a situation where for nearly 20 years, Scotland was effectively ruled by remote control by a hostile administration that was obsessed with resource extraction. A parliamentary question that was answered the month before the 1997 election that returned Tony Blair and the Labour Party to power was, how much more money has been raised in Scotland for taxation than has been spent there? And the answer was £40 billion, or at today's rates, $80 billion, over 10 years for a nation of 5 million people. $2,000 per year per person going out of your country to fund another country. Now, that is by way of explaining why there was so much support for Scottish independence when the Conservatives were kicked out of office. You know, the country had been milked by remote control by a hostile colonial government for 20 years. Labour came to power and they very rapidly defused this crisis by allowing a vote on devolution, which devolved a lot of power from Parliament to a Scottish Assembly, which has about as much independence as an American state has within the the federal government. Um, Now, the result has been a lively political culture north of the border, but a situation where pressure for outright independence fell away. But I could see there was one situation that could emerge and probably would emerge from the near future that would trigger demands for Scottish independence. Another Conservative election victory. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I still think that's possible. And the scary aspect of it is the Conservatives have now realised they don't need Scotland. Scotland does not contribute to their MPs. More importantly, if you subtract Scotland from the British National Parliament as a whole it would deliver a structural conservative majority for a generation because it would have subtracted a lot of left-wing MPs. I see. So it's in their interest. They preserve their own power by exiling the Scots. While at the same time, the Scots would be yelling to get out, out of the Union. So that is why I figured setting it in an independent Scotland in 2017 was not actually that far-fetched. Labour have been in power for 10 or 11 years now. There was very nearly an election this autumn. Um, General elections are called whenever the Prime Minister thinks it's a good time rather than on a set schedule. There will be at least two more Westminster elections before 2017, though. There's a maximum of five years between elections. If you hit the five-year period, you have to have an election. And I can't see Labour hanging on to power in the UK as a whole for... 20 years, which it would be at this point. Sooner or later, they'll put a step wrong, and then Scottish independence looks suddenly like a likely prospect, or certainly a plausible one. One of the the crime fiction aspects of this book that I thought was really great was when they are combing the uh, programmer's apartment, and they look in his bed, and they find 300 different types of DNA. Well, has somebody done that? The UK has, in addition to most of the world's closed-circuit TV surveillance cameras, the biggest DNA database of any nation on the planet. The British population is one-fifth that of the United States, but it has the same size, if not a slightly bigger, DNA database. They want to actually make it universal. Um, 
There is, however, a fairly simple way to defeat DNA profiling at the scene of a crime. You go on the top deck of a bus with a small vacuum cleaner and you scoop up skin samples and dust from the seat cushions. You will sample several hundred people that way, and if you spray it over the crime scene, it's like smearing your fingerprints, or getting 300 other people's fingerprints on top of your own. Another uh, innovation you have is the VOC Act. Uh, could you explain what that is? It, that, is that um, is that happening right now, victim of crime? It's an extrapolation from certain penal policies that seem to be in along the way. There are various... The British criminal justice system is undergoing a gigantic overhaul, which has been a project for Home Office, that part of a civil service surrounding justice and prisons, has been pushing for for decades. There's an awful lot of laws on the books that go back to the 17th or 18th century, and these are all being replaced piecemeal by very precisely drafted, at least in theory, laws making governing certain crimes. Um, one of the things there's been a lot of campaigning for is more help for victims of crime. It's a perennial talking point. Um, you know, we must save the children, we must be nice to the victims of crime, we must make the criminals pay restitution, and so on. Um, it's part of that dialogue and rhetoric. Um, there is already, for example, compensation for criminal injuries out of a public purse up to a certain level, never mind your insurance. And in this instance, one of the, as one of the aspects of current British criminal justice thinking is that the victims have been neglected and need some help. And so they get, they get help whether they want it or not. We're from the government and we're here to help you, British style. Now... Your characters in this book live in a world of constant surveillance, and you yourself, according to do as well. Are you comfortable with this? They're comfortable with it, and, and you you only see it increasing because when everybody is wearing what you call the life blog cameras and recording their own every moves, you end up in a society where everybody knows what you're doing all the time. I will confess to being uneasy about it. Um declaration here, I am a woolly liberal and a member of various civil liberties groups, including um, that no, the No To ID campaign, which is specifically opposed to the adoption of a national ID identity register and a lot of this surveillance technology. I don't like the surveillance technology. But as I said, certain technologies come with a political agenda attached, and it's very difficult to argue against them if you're going to use them at all. Uh, Closed-circuit TV surveillance cameras have been making increasing inroads in the UK everywhere. I'm not convinced of their usefulness. Um, specifically after the incident a few years ago in which my wife parked a bicycle under a set of surveillance cameras hoping it would be safe and came back to find it had been field-stripped, she went to complain to the janitor of the institution where the cameras were held. Uh, he said, I'm terribly sorry, but the cameras were the first thing they stole. <laughs> Now, uh, here we found, I, I know in San Francisco they installed cameras uh, in a crime-ridden neighborhood and found really they had no help. They provided no help whatsoever. It is somewhat controversial. In the UK there were some early findings that what happened was that cameras displaced criminal activity from areas under the cameras to areas away from them. Um, more recently there's been some argument but it has no effect whatsoever. Um, the problem with cameras is that it takes an awful lot of manpower to watch the screens. And while there have been attempts to use, for example, face recognition software, face recognition software is poor. Um, yes, it can very often recognize faces, especially in a laboratory 
setting, but it will also get false positives. It will think it's recognised a face when in fact it hasn't. It's recognised a stranger. And imagine you're hunting for terrorists in a crowd. You're hunting for ten terrorists in one million people. Um, a false negative rate of one in ten means that one in ten times it will miss a terrorist when it should have identified one. A false positive of one in ten means it will identify 10% of your population as terrorists. So false positives are actually what put the boot in on this sort of surveillance. Um, our hypothetical 10 terrorists in 1 million people, if there's a false positive rate of 1 in 10, then you've identified 100,000 terrorists, and you know they aren't. It's useless. You have to have a very, very low false positive rate um, before uh, image recognition of faces becomes useful in public settings. It's the same as the problem with the US government's no-fly list, where if you have a name that's somewhat similar to that of, a t of an alias that a terrorist has used, they may de deny you of the ability to fly. Um, unfortunately, an awful lot of people have been swept up in the dragnet just by having similar-sounding names. I mean, is um, Senator Edward Kennedy a terrorist? Well, it, according is... to many, that yes. Wow. <laughs> <But> <laughs> You talk a lot about economics as a, as a form of war. We got heard that in your in your reading, and you ha have a lot of interesting observations about s social hierarchies, in which our most primitive hierarchies are continue to be enacted in the, the highest technological settings. And there's a really great scene with uh, a character you who you call the Silverback. Yeah. He's your alpha male business executive gorilla. He's the alpha male in the primate troop, and all the others are going to richly bow before him, or he will shriek and fling dung at them. And this happens regularly in a business setting. <laughs> Any business. Um, the only way to really get away from it is to be self-employed. <laughs> and even then, you still have to sell something to somebody. Yeah. Um, there's an awful lot of people out there who go through life role-playing, not really sure of their own motivations for doing it, and who seem to work um, on a zero-sum game in human interactions involving their ego. If they're going to win something, everybody else around them has to lose something. And it's wholly unnecessary, it's very childish. You can see exactly the same behaviour in the monkey house at any zoo. Um, but there's a lot of people who do this stuff. Would you care to talk about... I, I want to get back to the second person because I think this is a really interesting uh, way to, to write a book. And some of the implications of this is that for the reader, the reader is, you are many people. Yeah. Writing in the second person is interestingly different to writing in the first person or the third person. It has certain pitfalls that a normal first person narrative doesn't have. When you're writing in the first person, you can tell the reader what I am thinking and I is distanced. There's someone in front of a reader, and you can claim to be thinking something, and the reader's got no way of denying that. Um, it's fairly easy to be plausible. If you're telling the reader what they or you are thinking, you are thinking that you're very angry with me right now. Well, no, you're sitting opposite me smiling in a studio. Um, and that is going to throw you into immediate disbelief of the narrative. It is going to throw you out of willing suspension of disbelief. So when writing of a second person, you have to be very careful to tiptoe around the reader's interior states. You can't tell them what, you're, what they're feeling. You may be able to tell them what they're noticing or what they're seeing, 
or even a little bit of what they're thinking, but you can't tell them how they feel about stuff unless they have, unless you've painted the scene around them so brightly that they can tell what sort of scene they're meant to be in. And this takes us again back to to your language and your humor. The, the, your books are always funny, and this book is no exception. And there's a lot of really great humor. I, I love your your corporate humor, particularly when you're describing somebody as a suit with slots for dorsal fins. I've met them. I've worked in a dot com that was going public. There's a tailor somewhere who takes Armani suits and adds dorsal fin slits for the sharks. I'm sure of this. Um, but getting back to the point to humour, um, I try not to lose track of the fact that I am fundamentally there to be entertaining. I'm trying to get some interesting messages and ideas across in my books, but if all I was writing about was the ideas, I'd be writing an academic paper. Um, when one is writing a novel, there is absolutely no point making it profound and deep if the reader is so bored by it they put it down after five pages. So... A sprinkling of humour or of wit, rather than just straightforward jokes, really does help. Um, it keeps the reader in a good frame of mind and makes it easier for the rest of the stuff to slip down their eyes. So, as I said, um, I try to keep aware of the fact that I'm here to be entertaining, and humour helps. Uh, when you're writing humour, do you... Have, do you does it come out the first time? I mean, because it, your prose, just in general, your prose style is a rather humorous and, and witty re repartee. It's like listening to somebody who's very smart and funny telling you an entertaining story. Does it happen that way normally, or do you have to like go back and and cleave this stuff back in? It gets tidied up regularly. Everything I write gets polished up along the way. Um, used to be the case when writers relied on typewriters that they'd write a draft and it'd be rough and dirty and they'd take their sheets and they'd copy type it, rewriting it on the fly and go through multiple drafts that way. Word processors let you work in different ways and what I normally do is I start each working day by reviewing and revising what I wrote the day before. This gives me a sense of continuity when I begin writing new material. You know, I'm continuing from what's already there. And it also means that by the time I finished the first draft, it is in fact the end of the second draft because it's been ready polished along the way. Um, and a lot of the stuff gets tidied up in that second pass. We've been speaking with Charlie Strauss. His new novel is Halting State. Thank you for joining me, Charlie. Thank you very much, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.